Well, good morning, everyone. I'm delighted to be here to have the chance to share the word with you this morning. I know these circumstances continue to be not what we expected, but I think we'll find, as we look into God's word this morning, that God is not surprised by anything. And the expectations that we often bring to life get rearranged when God himself steps in. Today is known around the world as Palm Sunday. This is the Holy Week. This begins a remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ's journey from northern Israel down to Jerusalem. In the text of scripture that we will read this morning, we will find that he is reaching what really can be called the beginning of the end. And this is true for him. It was the beginning of the end of his earthly life. You may be feeling a bit this morning like we might be in the beginning of the end because of how dire the circumstances have seemed to you. But I want to assure you this morning that Jesus Christ, the King, is not surprised by anything. And when it seems like it's the end is when he shines at his brightest as the King of all. Let's direct our attention this morning to Matthew chapter 21 and see in the text of scripture who this king is and to know the central truth that the king is here. That's the title of the message this morning. The king is here. And that's the reassurance that our hearts need. At no greater time do we perhaps realize this than now. While the remarkable thing remains, not much has changed. If you think about our lives, we still have the same needs as we've just sung. Lord, I need thee every hour. And sometimes we give lip service to that, but it takes a crisis to really break us down and to help us realize just how needy we are. This text of scripture, again, reveals the king who is here, who steps into our times of need and gives us the grace that we must receive from him in order to please him now by receiving him as our king. Look with me again as our elder Mickey Sims read, I will look again with you in Matthew chapter 21. I'd like to as well walk us through this text of scripture. So follow along as I read it. If you do have your scripture, we encourage you just like you would be sitting here to take that Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 21 and follow along now as I read verses one through 11 once again. Now, pardon me. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. 
And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Join me as I, as I pray once again. We'll seek the Lord's blessing as we've read this, his infallible, inerrant, and sufficient word. Father in heaven, we, we seek you. We know that you alone are in control of this world. And through your son, Jesus, and by your spirit, are mediating that control in ways that we may not see, but that we believe are true because of your testimony of yourself and of your son, Jesus, our king and the power of your spirit. Please help us as we look into this text of scripture today. Reveal to us our king and reveal to us how we must respond to him. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to share with you three points from this text and they can be phrased this way. The king is coming. You could see that in verse 5 from that prophecy that comes from the book of Zechariah. Zechariah prophesied to Israel, your king is coming. And in this text of scripture, he comes. I want to set up in that first point what it meant for the people for the king to come. It's not like what we might think in England as Prince Charles or the queen goes through in royal pageantry or in some medieval sense of a king arriving on a, a majestic steed to conquer and to show his power. What did it mean for the people to expect the king? All right, and the second point, I want us to ask the question, who is this king? If we, go, if we want to understand rightly the expectation of the king, we need to receive the king on his terms and understand how he reveals himself and who he is. And then finally, we want to ask the question at the very end, what must we do with this king? What must we, how must we respond to this king? Well, let's consider the first point. The king is coming. In the very first few verses, we have this scene where Jesus arrives at an area called Bethphage, and he has just come down the Jericho Road through the Judean wilderness climbing those hills, traveling with a growing band of disciples. And when he arrives at Bethphage and a town called Bethany, which neighbored it, he was met there by a group of people who were waiting for him because of something that he had done recently. John chapter 12 reveals that one of the things Jesus had done prior to this scene was he had raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. John chapter 11 revealed that, and the people remembered that, and they sought Jesus out to find out what else this powerful, amazing man could do. And so they throng him once he gets to that area of Bethphage, and that is at the base of the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem. And Jesus then would take a course from that village over the Mount of Olives, which is about 2,200 feet above sea level, down into the Kidron Valley and go into the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem. Now, what's happening in the city at this point? This is the week 
of unleavened bread, the feast of unleavened bread, which would culminate at the end of the week with the Passover feast. Jesus, like many pilgrims in Israel, are traveling to Jerusalem at this time. And normally in this era, Jerusalem would have about 40,000 people. This week, the numbers would swell to 200,000, 300,000 people. They would come from all over, many of them from the north, like Jesus has just come. They have heard many reports of what this man could do. And the, the fever of king worship, king desire, king need has reached its pitch. What would Jesus do about it? Prior to this time, he has maintained his code of the Messiah secret or the messianic secret. You might read in the gospel sometimes he would heal people and then he would say, now don't tell anyone. Now in Matthew chapter 20, he has healed two blind men and those blind men have gone on to follow him and Jesus did not say to them at all, don't tell anyone because now the secret is out. The Messiah is on the way to Jerusalem. The king has arrived. And the people are wondering, if the king is coming, what will he be like? Well, in the second point this morning, we need to consider what this text reveals about the king and what our hearts here on Palm Sunday need to remember about him and to know about him, for truly he still reigns. In the second point, who is this king? Let's go through the text and look at a number of things that Jesus wants us to know about his role as king and what he can do. In the first place, we answer, who is this king? He is the sovereign king. If you have a king at all, you want him to be sovereign. The king is going to rule and you want him to have the power and the authority to carry out what he promises he can do. You also want him to be good. But in the very first place, how do we see that Jesus has this sovereign control? Look again at the first few verses. We see that he is at the Mount of Olives, ready to begin his descent into Jerusalem. And he sends two disciples ahead of him to a village that's not named here. Now he says to them, go into the village in front of you. And he says, immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. This is an amazing thing. And you might think, well, perhaps Jesus just had maybe a prearranged situation. Perhaps he had sent word ahead to one of the people in the village, I'm coming and I'm going to need a donkey today. But we have no indication of that in the text. And everywhere that this is mentioned in the other Gospels, the image that we get is of a true prophet who has knowledge, authority, and has the power to share what he is about to do. This is what Jesus does. That's what it means to be sovereign. Not only know what's going to happen, but you have control over what you're about to do. So the disciples go out. They find the donkey and the colt. Incidentally, the other gospel writers don't include two animals here, but Matthew does. And I think the main significance here is Jesus rides on the smallest unbroken colt that he finds here in this village and has arranged for his trip. It's interesting when you try to ride an unbroken animal, it's rather unwieldy and crazy as you're trying to hold on and to break that animal in. 
On the one hand, the donkey could have been very much the, the reassuring presence that the colt needed on the way into Jerusalem. But on the other hand, as he takes these two animals in, his control over that colt extends even to his ability to master it and to, in peace, ride into that city of Jerusalem. Well, another thing we learn about our king is not only that he's sovereign, but that he is divine. Verse 3, this is what he says to the disciples to share with whoever owns that donkey and that colt. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now, I haven't, I couldn't help but think as I was preparing this text of scripture and thinking about those words, how amazing it would be to go up to any place where I needed something to merely say, the Lord needs them, then take that and everything would be okay. I think those original disciples would have been a little apprehensive, perhaps, but they went, which shows to me they understood at one level Jesus's understanding of himself. He is Lord. And what he says goes. And so they go. And they experience no problem at all. In another text of scripture, in Mark's account of this, I love that Mark includes, which would have been Peter's remembrance of this, that Jesus says, tell the people the master or the Lord needs them and he will return them when he's finished. Our Lord is gracious in how he uses resources. He had these donkeys especially picked out for his ride into Jerusalem that day. But likewise, he also gives them back. Well, he says it, and it comes to pass. He is divine. What he arranges, that's what he gets. But another thing that is at the heart of this passage is that this king is the prophetic king. He is one who has been prophesied about and promised all throughout the Old Testament. And if you look at verses 4 and 5, you see where Matthew includes a prophecy that comes from the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. Let's read what Matthew says once again. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, what did Zechariah say? Well, in the passage that Matthew views this prophecy and then takes it here and records it in Matthew 21, what he's looking at was a time when Zechariah, Old Testament prophet, towards the end of the Old Testament, prophesied that someone would come, a king would come to Israel, having finally defeated all their enemies around them. And when that king came, he would usher in an unprecedented era of peace and prosperity. Now, at all times, for all people, ultimately, this is what we're looking for. We want peace. We don't want to get into fights with others. We don't want trouble in our lives. We want our, our lives to have what the Old Testament Jewish Hebrew word shalom is all about. Wholeness of self. No trouble without, no trouble within. But on the other hand, people in every age want prosperity. 
We don't want things that are brought by pandemics, for example, and viruses. We want instead to have areas of life that thrive, whether that be our medical field, whether that be our food that we grow, whether it be our stocks and portfolios. People have not really changed. Peace and prosperity, these are the things that we want. And it's promised in Zechariah that a king is bringing them. Zechariah 9, 9, here's what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. I love the use of that word daughter by Zechariah as God is speaking to his people. God regards even his rebellious, wayward people as daughter. He views them as his family, and he has not rejected them. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Now I want you to see that the text prophesies certain things about this king. He would be righteous. He would bring salvation to his people. He would be humble. And he would be riding on a donkey. Now, when you look back at Matthew 21, you notice that Matthew does not mention that the king coming is righteous. And he doesn't mention that he has salvation. Now, friends, that's not because Matthew doesn't think Jesus is righteous and not because he doesn't think Jesus is bringing salvation. The point is Matthew is emphasizing what in the prophecy is happening on this day. The humble king has arrived. And what we see in this text is that the prophetic king emphasizes that he is the humble king. Now, what does it mean for him to be the humble king? But think about what was happening in this scene. He could have ridden in, as Jesus himself one day will, on a white horse, coming down out of the clouds, to destroy his enemies, and for all of those who have submitted to him to establish them in his forever kingdom. Someday, according to Revelation, he will do that. But in this scene, he in his humility identify with the people around him. Jesus, for all of his ministry, primarily walked. He didn't hitch rides. He was mostly up around that northern region of Galilee, traveling around Capernaum, once or twice going over into Gentile territory and coming back, but all to establish the foothold of the kingdom of God. And when he comes to this threshold of Jerusalem this time, he chooses this donkey to communicate the humility that he has towards God's plan and the timing that God wills because this king has humbled himself to the road that he is on that will eventually lead to his own rejection, scourging with whips, lies that are spoken about him, and his crucifixion at the hands of wicked men. In Matthew 20, he told his disciples this very thing, that this was going to happen. But no one seems to believe this yet. Matthew, looking back on this, wants to emphasize that the salvation that so many of the people were hoping for 
was not yet the salvation that Jesus had come to deliver. He is a humble king, submitted to the will of God, and a humble king in identifying with his people, so much so that he was on this road to, at the end of this week, give up his very life. And by this, we also know, my friends, that he is the peaceful king. The peaceful king. Luke chapter 19 records what the people said in Luke's version of this entry of Jesus on the donkey. And the people cried out in Luke chapter 19, verse 38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is what the people were hoping for. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. If there's peace in heaven between God and the people, that means he's sending his king to bring that peace. Their hope was anchored in the Zechariah 9.9 hope that the king was there to usher in the peace and the prosperity that they had long hoped for. But the king, when he arrived in the city, after riding his donkey in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 and 42, we read this about Jesus. When he drew near and saw the city, Jesus wept over it, saying, Would that you, Jerusalem, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now, Jesus said with tears, they are hidden from your eyes. What did Jesus mean and why did he weep? Because amidst all the pomp and celebration, all the cries of Hosanna, save now, the people didn't understand the salvation that would need to come and who their king was as he rode through the midst of them. Now, he did not discourage their worship. He did not say that their words were wrong. But in his heart, he recognized that their perception of him still did not realize that the peace that first needed to come was the peace that could not be brought in this world by fighting or through war or through revolution. Jesus did not come to bring a revolution, but to reveal his God and to reveal the need of men and women, sinners before their holy God, who needed the peace that only God could bring through sacrifice. Well, my friends, Jesus did give us a promise that it's possible to know his peace. And in this tumultuous time that we're in, Think about this verse and think about our king who establishes peace and urges you to receive it on his terms. John 16, 33. Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room on the night that he was betrayed, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Isn't that true? Don't we face that even now? The peace and the prosperity have come at times in certain measure, but never perfectly balanced and never exactly what it is that we need for the utopia that the human heart craves and longs for. Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. But he says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. 
And this is what Jesus came to do, to defeat the system that was set up to keep men and women in bondage of sin and to deliver them. How do I know this? Well, there are two more things about the king. This is an interesting one that I am astounded by, having read the life of David some time ago. We read that the king is the Davidic king. As he comes into Jerusalem, the people are, are crying out and shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna, save now, descendant of David. Get on your throne and rule us. This is the hope of the people. They esteem rightly Jesus is both the legal heir and the natural descendant of King David himself. Now, what's astounding to me about this is that nothing is left untouched by our sovereign king. Did you know that the route Jesus takes from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem in triumph is the reversed route that David took as he fled Jerusalem to go to the Mount of Olives in defeat away from his son Absalom. If you think about it, this is how it goes. Jesus enters in triumph from the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley into the East Gate of Jerusalem. David, perhaps arguably Israel's greatest king, at the height of his power, experienced a coup from his son that overthrew him, and David fled in defeat. 2 Samuel 15, out of the East Gate, through the Kidron Valley, weeping as he went up into the Mount of Olives. The people finally get a king who reverses all of the failures of men, and they can look to this king, and they rightly could esteem, as we must this morning, where everyone fails, where all fall in disgrace, Jesus, the Lord, our King, will never fail, will never fall in disgrace. And following Him, we must recognize that He is our perfect King. Well, the, the fever of the people, as they esteemed these things and worshipped Him, could not have been higher or hotter than that original Palm Sunday when Jesus rode through on his donkey to the cries of save now. Establish your throne, son of David. But who is this king? Finally, we must know that he is the Messiah king. The Messiah king. One of the things that was happening in Jerusalem during this time period was the selection of the lambs that would be sacrificed for the Passover feast. And it just so happens that on the day Jesus enters in was the day that the lambs had come in and the selection of those spotless, pure lambs had begun down in the temple. Now I say it just so happens, but I don't believe anything happens just according to chance when our sovereign divine king is involved. As the Messiah, what was the king doing? The Messiah, this is a word that means long-awaited deliverer. The Lord, 
the one who has come to redeem and rescue his people, the Zechariah 9, 9, master and king, the Messiah. Isn't this who would come? Well, what's interesting is that Jesus, amidst all of the cry of the people, rides through that road on Palm Sunday as the people put down their coats and cut branches off the palm trees and lay them on the road as well. You ever wondered why they did that? Well, on the one hand, it is to show respect. But on the other hand, what other things had gone up that road that day? Well, it was countless donkeys and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sheep. Now, whenever animals walk through any place, you know what they leave behind is mounds and mounds of poo. I'm, try- I'm not trying to be crass in telling you this, but I'm trying to help you get a visualization of what had gone on in Jerusalem on that road right as Jesus is walking in. The people are putting down their cloaks on the ground and the palm branches on the road so that their king would not be dishonored by riding on top of that animal waste. Nevertheless, their king was riding in on the same road that those sheep had come for the slaughter. Jesus rides in, and in our text in Matthew 21, it seems like the very next thing he did is that he goes into the temple. But please know that Matthew 21, verse 12, actually takes place on Monday. And now what we have, according to Mark 11, that talks about this same event, Jesus gets to the temple on Sunday night. It's getting late. He looks around at the buildings. And then he turns around and he walks back the road and goes back to Bethany. What a letdown. Imagine what people were hoping would happen. Our king has come. He's going down the road. He's now through the east gate of Jerusalem. He's in the temple. He's going to shake the establishment and assert his right. And the kingdom begins. What happened? As Jesus turns around and goes back, I can imagine the crowd that's mentioned several times in Matthew 21 scratching their heads, looking at one another and asking, what just happened? It wasn't what they expected at all. The king did not come according to the agenda of men to be put on a throne, not at this time. He came as Isaiah Chapter 53, 7 says, to be the Passover lamb for the people of God. Isaiah 53, 7 says this about the Messiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. My friends, As Jesus goes throughout the rest of this week, and if you read the Gospels this week, you'll see that he did go back to the temple, but he challenged the false belief. He challenged the systems of men, but he didn't ascend the temple and sit on the most holy place. Jesus spent his nights in Bethany until ultimately by Thursday night, he was betrayed by those closest to him. And on Friday, he was crucified for the sins of the people. 
All this would be in accordance to God's plan for who the Messiah King would be. He would be the one who would give up his life so that the people of God who were wayward, who had gone their own way, could be forgiven and could be made right with God and have peace with him and peace with one another. Until that was solved, no earthly kingdom would ever be able to solve the problems of mankind. In the final place today, my friends, how must we respond to this king? That's the issue that each of us will face today. And I thought of two groups that are always going to be hearing God's word, that will always be faced with, what do we do now? And that's what you should be asking every time that you read God's word, you should ask that question, what must I do with this? And today, what must we do with this king? First, I want to speak to you, any of my, my non-believing friends who are listening to this message. Submit to Jesus today. Yield to King Jesus today. The threat of coronavirus is real. You may get it, and that would be awful. Yes, it could even lead to death for some of your loved ones or even you. But what I want you to realize is that you already have a death sentence on you. And I'm not making a threat. I'm simply revealing what God the almighty maker of heaven and earth says about every one of us, myself included, if we have not bowed the knee to his son Jesus, that we are in danger of the wrath of God. But God would not have you to be lost in an eternity of suffering apart from him. He would have you to be in his kingdom and to bow the knee to his son. But it begins by seeing his son, the king, go through the crowded streets of Jerusalem, communicating with all of his heart and with every action that he did, I am your lamb. I have come for the forgiveness of your sins. Believe on me. Receive me. So that you would not have to suffer what I am about to suffer. That you would not be cut off from the loving God. Believe on me today. This is what the Lord, the sovereign, the king says to you in his humble status now. And someday each of us will bow the knee to him and say, you are Lord and God. But today could be your day, my non-believing friend, to believe and to become one of the subjects, the beloved people of King Jesus. Now, to my believing brothers and sisters, this is what I say to us. In the very first place, worship the king. Worship the king. Don't go through these days missing the opportunity wherever you are, whether it be stuck in your home or still in your commute to work or an occasional run to the grocery store, working in your yard, working alongside your children as you educate them, whatever your situation might be, Worship the king. He still is here and he rules. And I would say to you as well, my believing brothers and sisters, 
submit to the king's sovereign rule. Submit to the king's sovereign rule. Sometimes we forget in life that our greatest need is not to be well-fed, employed, respected, or have great political leaders. You know, I sometimes criticize that crowd who saw Jesus that day, but I think we Christians could identify with them. Oftentimes, we want Jesus to do our agenda, and we bring to him our desires. And we might even say, if it's your will. But our our real thinking is, I really hope it's your will because this is really what I want done. This time has not changed our condition at all. This coronavirus has not revealed perhaps more of this, but it has highlighted that we still can be like that crowd at times. And instead, I would urge you to read more about this king. The way that he taught us, if you would read what he said to his disciples in Matthew 20, is not to prioritize ourselves in this time, but it is to think of others as greater than us and bend down to serve them in their need. All of us will be foreseeably getting some money in the near future. Would you consider that the king's priorities for you might be to ask who among us has need? I am grateful last week we received a report that $7,000 was contributed to our benevolence fund. Praise God. The church is working like it's supposed to be, but I urge you to be about that business and to submit to the master's rule right now. And finally, my friends, as you're about this mission, I want you to focus on the priority of what the king is about. We're hearing a lot of things and a lot of conjecture that we're in the end times, that perhaps Antichrist is on the move. My friends, I want you to realize we've always been in the end times. Since Jesus rose from the dead, from that time till now, the end times have been going on. So as a result, we cannot be sidetracked from the main mission of what our king has said. Even if you feel stuck where you are, your role right now is to trust the king who said, go out, make disciples, and to do so with confidence because our king has said, I will be with you even till the end of the age. Jesus still has that agenda, and we must be about it. And my friends, no matter what spiritual, economic, or political things are happening in the world or to you, and these truly are important things that affect us all, nothing is more important or lasting than being about the king's mission. He's doing something with COVID-19. And just like he turned that big letdown of the triumphal entry, which did not feel so triumphant, but rather anticlimactic, he turned that into the powerful work of the cross. And he can turn the worldwide depression and death caused by COVID-19 to transform lives, save millions, and display his glory and power to the world. Let's be about the king's mission. Would you join me as I pray? Our God in heaven, we look to you. Our king, we cry out to you that hearts would recognize your Passover sacrifice. That they would see you as the lamb who comes to take away the sin of the world. 
and that our priorities would be on worshiping you, that our hearts would be set on submitting to your sovereign agenda, and that we would be diligently and joyfully about your mission, trusting you for the outcome of what you are doing in this season of time. In Jesus' name.